On June 12th, a radicalized American-born man walked into Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. He slaughtered 49 people and wounded more than 50 others. According to the transcript of a tape of a 911 call he placed himself, the killer pledged his allegiance to the Islamic State terror network. Just four days later, a British Labour MP, Joe Cox, died after being shot, stabbed and kicked in a horrific attack in her parliamentary constituency in Northern England. The man charged with murdering her gave his name in court as, quote, death to traitors, freedom for Britain. This is Special Relationship. I'm John Prado from The Economist. And I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. Today we're talking about the politics of gun violence. The Orlando massacre was the worst shooting attack in modern American history. And a week after it happened, legislation that would have strengthened gun control died on the floor of the United States Senate. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. In Europe, the reaction to gun violence is normally very different. Nobody called for Brits to arm themselves after Joe Cox was murdered. Actually, that would have been illegal. After 16 children and a teacher were killed in a school shooting 20 years ago, handguns were banned in Britain. There have been no school shootings ever since. Gun ownership is much more common in Europe than you might think, but the guns people do own are rifles and shotguns, and they're used by hunters. Joining us now to speak about what he's doing to get lawmakers to move on gun regulations is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Last week, he led a 15-hour filibuster to force a national conversation on this issue. But I'm at my wit's end. I've had enough. I've had enough of the ongoing slaughter of innocents, and I've had enough of inaction in this body. Senator Murphy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm sure a lot of people both here and overseas are looking at what's going on with gun violence, uh, you know, after Orlando uh, and and many other incidents. And then they look at what's happened in the Senate uh, just now, and they say something maybe isn't adding up. So uh, how do you, how would you explain to these people what is going on? Yeah, that's very kind to say that something isn't adding up. Uh, yeah, certainly something isn't adding up when you have... of the American public who support the anti-gun violence measures that we're proposing. And this week, we've been asking for votes on two measures, one to uh, take people who are on the no-fly list who are suspected of terrorist ties and not allow them to buy guns, and second, expand the scope of background checks so that you have to prove if you're a criminal or a potential terrorist whether or not you buy a gun in a gun store or on the internet. You know, there's something that doesn't add up when 90% of American pub- the American public support those measures and Congress can't muster 50 votes. Um, the Senate can't muster a majority. Uh, this is not controversial anywhere in the country except for here where, unfortunately, the gun lobby um, has a vice grip, uh, a vice grip that is loosening um, every day since Orlando uh, in significant, significant ways, but a grip that right now still prevents these consensus measures from becoming law. That's deeply, deeply frustrating for everybody, but certainly for those of us that have come from states that have been ravaged by this epidemic. Senator, when you talk to your colleagues in the Senate who are on the other side on this issue, what do they say to you in private? I mean, in, in, in public, the pronouncements are often things like, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, or you can't trust the federal government to run background checks. Do you get more sophisticated 
arguments in private? Or is it the case that on this issue, the two sides just don't talk to each other very much? Well, we do talk to each other. And, you know, none of my colleagues are going to, you know, tell me even in private that they agree with me, but they have to vote against me just because the gun lobby is too strong. Uh, No one's going to admit that uh, in a one-on-one conversation. But I do think that's a big element of this. I think the uh, gun lobby and the NRA are very powerful within the Republican Party. Um, you know, virtually every, you know, Republican senator thinks that they might someday run for president. And they think the only way they can do that is with the support of the NRA. Now, I would argue that that's not true, but that's their perception. Um, There are others who are true believers who do believe some of this bunk research that uh, tells them that the more guns you have in a community, the safer you are. That that is basically one researcher who uh, has found that. It's been totally discredited, but Many of them think that this mythology of, you know, good guys with guns killing bad guys with guns is actually true. So I think it's a combination of folks who are kind of absolutists about the Second Amendment, people who believe that ridiculous line by the NRA about good guys killing bad guys with guns, and then others who are just scared of the power of the gun lobby. So just to be clear, you think the NRA's main leverage over your opponents is their kind of future ambition. It's not, I'd always imagined that, that the main leverage was that, you know, these folks worry about getting primaried and having an A-plus rating is a kind of important thing in a, in a primary. But you think it's not that so much as future ambition? No, I guess I, I led with that, but I think you're right. I think it's probably equal parts um, everyone plotting their next move, but also being afraid of a, of a primary. I mean, you're talking about Republican primaries where a very tiny slice of the electorate actually turns out. And, you know, the, what has happened here is that, you know, the, the, the stamp of approval from the NRA, you know, it now means something much more than just your positions on guns. The NRA has been very um, cagey in making its mark of approval, you know, effectively be a, a way for candidates to communicate their conservative credentials in a much broader sense. You know, if you really, if you're, if you really hate the government, if you really hate President Obama, well, then there's no more radical group to, uh, to, to have by your side than the NRA, which is essentially, you know, arguing for potential future armed rebellion against the government. So, you know, we've got to deal with that problem, which is that you, you, Republicans want the NRA stamp of approval because it's a way of telling primary voters that they're true conservatives. And um, if we had another way for them to communicate that, uh, then they might not need the NRA as much. I think that people know certainly that you're that you are uh, a member of the Senate now. Not everybody may remember that you were previously a congressman and that uh, the uh, municipality of Newtown, Connecticut, was part of your district, right? Yeah, it was. I was uh, in between. Um, uh, the election, my election to the Senate and my swearing in uh, when Newtown occurred. So after Newtown and after what happened at Sandy Hook, you know, some some gun laws did change. Uh, there was the, the New York Safe Act, for example, here in, in New York State, where we're speaking to you from. Um, so is it not completely hopeless, perhaps? But I mean, what has to happen? That's my question. I, I don't mean to sound you know so blunt about it, but what has to happen? Well, you're right that, you know, of course, this isn't hopeless. There's lots of laws that changed. And, you know, my state of Connecticut passed uh, one of the strongest uh, gun laws in the nation. And we have already started to see the benefit of that. There's been some very good research done 
uh, out of Johns Hopkins that controls for lots of other influencers and shows that uh, some of the laws that have been passed in Connecticut have resulted in remarkable decreases in rates of gun death. So, so we know that there have been some good news stories here. And you know, I think the story you're seeing this week in the Senate is you know, ultimately a good news story when it comes to public policy. You're watching the, the, the vice grip of the NRA on the legislative process here, atrophy. The fact of the matter is there are Republicans, as we speak, breaking with the NRA to support a measure that would keep terrorists from buying guns. I, I mean, it's ridiculous that it involves any act of political courage to do that, but you know that, that's how powerful the NRA has become. Ultimately, you know, this issue has got to be one that gets settled at the polls. You know, historically, Republicans have not really feared the consequences of siding against their constituents and with the NRA because they just figured people really wouldn't elevate this to a top of mind issue when they decided on who they were going to vote for. I think that's changing, too. Um, And I think this November you might see a Republican or two losing uh, because of the way they voted on background checks. And we clearly know that it's going to be a huge issue in the presidential election. I mean, never before in my lifetime have we seen you know, a presidential candidate uh, elevate this issue as Hillary Clinton has. If she wins, she's going to have a mandate to act, uh, to lead on anti-gun violence measures. Senators, you know, gun purchases actually increased after the awful shooting uh, at Newtown. And there are lots of people who look at that, you know, look at the way that, you know, gun owners in America react to these kind of mass shootings. You know, look at the Second Amendment, look at the power that Congress has to determine kind of organized minorities to block laws. And they kind of throw up their hands and say, you know, it's going to be impossible to ever get really far reaching gun control in America. So how do you think it comes about? I mean, do you think gun control happens? Is it, is it a kind of long term demography as destiny thing, you know, as the country becomes um, less white, you know, more Hispanic, more African American, the numbers change on gun control? Is it something that happens state by state? Is it something that happens when there's, you have a you know, Supreme Court that takes a different view of the Second Amendment? What's the, you know, if you're looking over a kind of 50 year view, how do you think this changes? Well, I think it's 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 all of the above, frankly. And you know, of course, everything looks impossible until it's not. Um, you know, the the long history on fighting for universal health care in this country or gay marriage. You know, all of those great change movements were defined. For, for the most part, by their failures before they were defined by success. And, and so I can't tell you exactly what the story is going to be. I just know that, you know, those of us who care about it can't stop fighting because eventually we will have some outside um, pressures that come to, to bear um, uh, in our favor. Um, I do think that you have an overall rate of gun ownership that is decreasing by the year. You know, it used to be that half of Americans own guns. Now that it's a, about a third of Americans as that number continues to get lower. Uh, I think that uh, things change. You have an anti-gun violence political infrastructure in this country, which frankly didn't exist for all intents and purposes before Sandy Hook that is now getting stronger and stronger uh, by the year. So there's just an evening out of political power uh, that's happening. Um, and then as as you mentioned, you've got you know political candidates who are now willing to do you know some extraordinary things. Uh, and, and there's just a leadership element here that's been missing. You haven't had political leadership leaders who are willing to go out and and push on this, and and you have that today. So I think all of those will be part of this story. But the NRA built up their power over 
um, 20, 30 years. And so this isn't all going to happen overnight. It's going to take us a while. But there's nothing to suggest that the trajectory right now isn't heading anywhere but in the direction of ultimately ending the NRA's veto power over legislation here. What makes me pessimistic, at least in the short term, is if you look at those gun ownership numbers, you're right that the kind of share of Americans who own guns is falling. But then if you look at gun owners' reasons for owning guns, it ceased to be about hunting. And the most popular reason for owning a gun now is self-defense. So if you're on the gun control side of the argument, you know, you have to go to people who think at the moment that having a gun makes them and their families safer and, and persuade them to you know, give those guns up. And it's that's just a really hard thing to do, even if it's correct. Yeah, but that's not what we're trying to do, right? I mean, no part of this movement is um, is is a crusade to stop people from making the decision to purchase a gun. What we are trying to do is make the laws safer so that people who shouldn't have them don't have them. Uh, and the guns that you buy um, have a greater likelihood of being safer. So I, I don't, when I, listen, I, I read those trend lines and I can explain to you the reasons why I think they, uh, they occur the way they do. Uh, but I don't think that our mission is ultimately to tell somebody that they shouldn't buy weapons for self-defense. Our mission is to make sure that um, people contemplating evil don't have weapons, that weapons aren't illegally flowing through our cities, that weapons are safer if you do uh, buy them, and that they're not as powerful as the ones that used to be reserved for the military. I, I think you know all of that can happen even in a world where you know Americans are continuing to buy weapons for self-defense, despite the data that tells you that if you buy a weapon— um, have it in your home, it is much, much more likely to be used to kill you or a loved one than it is to kill an intruder. So, uh, Senator, I'd be interested to know, I mean, uh, when you when you started the filibuster and as you were standing up there and p- this is going on for hours and hours and hours, I mean, there must have been some people who were looking at you and saying, that's the guy who wants to take away our guns. And I mean, how do you sort of make that argument that Things have to change to end this, the kind of violence that you see in places like Newtown or Orlando, perhaps. But that it's not about cutting the the Second Amendment out of the uh, out of the Bill of Rights. Well, I think it was important. You know, remember, you know, I, I probably set the record for you know, the the shortest percentage of speaking time during your own filibuster. Um, so I was up there for 15 hours, but I had 40 other senators who came down and asked me questions. Now, if you watched, the questions started out as being a couple minutes long and ended up in some cases being a half an hour long. Um, but many of those senators who came down were senators that, you know, have strong r- ratings from the NRA. You know, maybe they used to be A-rated and today they're, you know, B-rated. But, you know, th- Many senators, including Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Martin Heinrich from New Mexico, Tom Udall from New Mexico, came down to make that exact point that nothing we're talking about has anything to do with law-abiding gun owners. Um, And I think we've got to continue to make that point um, as clear as day over and over again. Now, nothing's going to stop the NRA from continuing to perpetuate this, you know, this, this lie that President Obama and Democrats in Congress really have as their secret agenda gun confiscation. Um, they they have to uh, sell that mythology because that's what sells guns. Um, but um, the fact of the matter is, is that you've got a lot of gun owners today that don't buy it. You know, 90% of, of Republicans 
support taking guns away from terrorists. 80% of NRA members support increased background checks. So we don't actually have to sell this stuff to gun owners. We've just got to sell it to a handful of members of Congress. And you had mentioned, uh, you know, that this would play out, uh, you know, not only at the legislative level, but in the presidential election. I mean, can you can you just talk a little bit about what do you think will happen if Hillary Clinton becomes president? And what do you think would happen if Donald Trump became president? What would we see? Well, I mean, you know, Donald Trump has telegraphed, you know, what would happen if he became president. And it's absolutely catastrophic. I mean, it's really hard to get to the right of the NRA to become more radical on guns than the NRA is. But Donald Trump has gotten there. He suggested in the wake of Orlando that the way to, you know, keep nightclubs safe was to make sure that everybody in there was drinking and carrying an assault weapon, which, of course, would be an epic disaster. And even the NRA knew that that was going too far, and they um, came out and, you know, and and divorced themselves from Trump's proposition. Um, But um, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, has made anti-gun violence measures, background checks, bans on assault weapons, uh, a central part of her campaign, like no other presidential candidate has. So, you know, Donald Trump is going to come in and essentially, you know, invite people to bring firearms in uh, into bars. He says on the first day he's in office, he'll get rid of gun-free school zones and allow for kids and uh, teachers and parents to carry weapons in schools. Um, Hillary Clinton's going to have a mandate if she gets elected to pass background checks, to pass the um, law banning terrorists from getting guns if we haven't done it already. It's just a, you know, it's it's about as stark a contrast as you can create on any issue. Senator, you mentioned in passing earlier that Joe Manchin came and, and uh, you know, spoke on your side during the filibuster. You know, famously, he sponsored a bill after Newtown that failed. What do you learn from the failure of that bill? Is it that the way to move forward on this is by kind of relatively small incremental steps rather than trying to introduce kind of, you know, big sweeping bills? Or is it some other lesson? Well, you know, I I would argue that his bill was much more incremental than sweeping in that um, it was a... um, you know, expansion of of background checks out to gun shows and internet sales with lots of exceptions, even within uh, those two expansions. It didn't do lots of other things that many of us think are important, like uh, banning military-style assault weapons uh, or um, restoring, you know, normal, regular uh, legal liability um, for manufacturers who produce unsafe weapons. So I think his step was pretty incremental. Uh, no, it, what it taught me, you know, and this was 2013 when it failed, is that, you know, ultimately this probably can't get settled inside the building. Ultimately, you've got to settle this outside the building. You've got to build up a reservoir of power within the anti-gun violence movement so that, you know, those members of Congress actually feel some political pain if they vote the wrong way. I just think that in the end, you know, the people that voted against Manchin Toomey were scared of the gun lobby and they weren't scared of anybody else. And, and so, you know, we got to make them scared of, uh, the 90% of their constituents who disagree with them. I guess that's what I learned from the Manchin-Toomey debate. Senator, when you talked about your your vision of sort of, uh, your vision for what would happen uh, if Hillary Clinton became president versus what would happen if Donald Trump became president, have you had a chance to speak to Secretary Clinton about these things directly? Yeah, I have on a number of occasions. Um, she uh, came to Connecticut uh, during her campaign to 
um, talk about anti-gun violence uh, measures. Uh, she called me um, the morning after the filibuster, and we got to talk at length about how we could work together to try to um, pass some of these measures through the Senate even before she becomes president. Uh, so, you know, her commitment to this is, you know, not just, um, you know, out on the campaign trail. She's been, you know, actively working with a lot of us to try to advance these measures even before she gets to the White House. So uh, I was, you know, really, you know, gratified by the fact that one of the first calls I received when I got back to the Capitol uh, on Thursday morning after a 15-hour filibuster was from Hillary Clinton. And I think that tells you how committed she is to this issue. And I think, uh, obviously, sir, we all know that this is not why you're doing this, but uh, people having seen what you did uh, with the filibuster and what you've done to advance these issues, um, the words vice president have come up. Yeah, I can tell you that I think the vetting process is underway. And uh, yeah, I am not, uh, I can tell you definitively, I'm not being vetted uh, to be vice president. But, um, you know, I just am ready to to work with her to try to enact this agenda that has been a big part of her campaign. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, John, we don't actually do this very often, but can you just talk a little bit about uh, yourself? What is the gun situation in England right now? Yes, so the thing that the UK's experience is that lots of people own guns for hunting. You know, I grew up in a house where there were shotguns and rifles in the safe. I grew up in in the kind of countryside. That sort of thing is pretty typical. But nobody ever had a handgun. And actually, they were they were banned. Handguns were banned in the UK in 1996 after there was this school shooting in Scotland in a, in a town called Dunblane. And there was really no objection to that at all. And I guess that's a couple of things, you know, the UK doesn't have a written constitution. So there was no question of, well, hang on, you know, the Second Amendment says you can't do that. Um, and also the gun cultures, I think, are very different in the two countries. You know, I think American gun culture is is bound up with kind of ideas of kind of individualism, of kind of heroism, of kind of, you know, kind of half-remembered sort of myths about the West and the frontier and so on. And so I just think that kind of the gun culture context is so different um, that things that are, you know, possible in other countries are not possible in America when it comes to when it comes to guns. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to me to hear you describe it that way, because I mean, it sounds almost romantic in a weird way. I mean, this sort of this sort of John Wayne sort of Wild West view of it, which I don't necessarily get when you think about, you know, Somebody like trying to jack you with a Glock nine because he wants your wallet or something like that. Sure. And and how are people feeling about the situation now uh, after after what happened with the uh, um, with the member of parliament? Are people just completely freaked out by it, or do they see it as just a, a sort of a a strange and random thing that doesn't mean anything more than just somebody dying in this this very sad way? Yeah, I think it's the latter. People see it as a very strange and random thing. I can't remember an MP being being shot in my lifetime. The guy used some kind of homemade gun, like maybe a toy gun that was adapted so it could take a bullet. There's certainly, you know, I, I haven't heard in the aftermath, as I said you know, earlier, anybody say, well, this shows that more people have guns. It's actually really rare even here for even the cops to have guns. People are quite resistant to that notion, which... You know, which is so different from 
from you know living in the U.S. where every cop has a has a pistol on their belt. So um, one of the things I go, uh, you know, when I visit m- uh, my pop, uh, is uh, we will go to uh, the range and we do some. We shoot uh, what's called clays, which is very sort of similar to skeet shooting a trap. You know, the thing, a little disc, it flies up in the air and you uh, you try to knock it into a million pieces. It's it's not hunting. It's not. It's a, it's you know. It's it's a it's a test of skill, and it's something that we enjoy together. And I think that, you know, people who do things like that or people in my family who have gun permits, who have gun safes, who are, are not doing this for to show off or to hurt anybody, I think these are the people that are also kind of worried about how things are going with gun violence right now, too, because they feel like these people don't give them a good name. <laughs> Right, I, I get that. I mean, actually, my dad shoots clays as well, so we, we have that in common. Um, I think one of the things that struck me from Senator Murphy's interview is that, you know, if you can do something about the illegal guns in America, that would make a huge difference, particularly to the... So what happens when there's a mass shooting like the one in Orlando? It gets a lot of attention, and rightly so. But what doesn't get attention is the kind of daily drumbeat of shootings um, that happen in American cities. And you talk to mayors of big cities, you know, police chiefs, they'll tell you that more often than not, those guns are illegal, right? They're not bought by people who have the permit for them. They're not people who've gone through background checks. If you could do something to stop that, I think you'd have a major effect on the on the murder rate, no? So maybe, you know, maybe there's some hope. Maybe we start with that. Maybe a little bit of, you know, incremental reform, you know, persuading law-abiding gun owners that they can do their thing, but this movement is all about making sure that people who don't follow the rules don't have guns. And, you know, maybe that's the way you, you roll it back and make some progress. That's it for this week. Join us in another two weeks on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Special Relationship. I'm at John Prido on Twitter. Celeste is at CelesteCatsNYC. Or you could also leave us a rating or a review in iTunes. We read those too. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike. And I'm John Prido at The Economist. See you in two weeks. 